Uh, the woman had just about given up. For 12 years, she'd suffered shame, discomfort, rejection, despair. Her medical, her medical condition had cost her everything. Her health, her friends, her community, her money, shunned by her neighbours, untouched by her husband and family. Doctors had tried to help, but their treatments had only made things worse. And then she'd heard that Jesus had come to visit. She'd heard he was from God, that he could heal even the worst cases, and that he had compassion on anyone. Perhaps she could sneak a quiet moment with him, with no one else around, and avoid the shame of more rejection. But when she arrived in town, her heart fell. It seemed like everyone else had the same idea. There were people everywhere crowding around Jesus as he walked from the harbour up through town. Surely she'd be last in the queue. Twelve years unclean, a hopeless case. And then to prove her point, she saw who was leading the procession, Jairus, the synagogue ruler, the most important man in town. Of course, he'd be the one Jesus helped first. Her hopes fell. The crowd came closer, her anxiety grew. But perhaps the crowd was her chance. The more people, the less chance she'd be recognised. Perhaps Jesus could even heal her without noticing. Perhaps all she had to do was touch him. But the risk was, if he found out, he'd rebuke her for making him unclean too, and her last chance would be gone. Quickly, before she lost her courage, she stepped forward into the surging crowd as Jesus approached. He moved past her, and as he did, she cautiously reached out her hand and touched his cloak. It was rough and dusty, nothing special, but the effect was instantaneous. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she knew she'd been healed. But almost as quickly as her healing, her joy turned to despair, because Jesus immediately stopped, turned around and asked the crowd, who touched my clothes? And the woman wished the ground would just open up and swallow her. It was almost worse than being sick. When she realised Jesus wasn't going to let it go, she came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him everything. Everything, that the whole of the 12 previous years. She expected a rebuke. She expected the condemnation and rejection of the crowd, but instead Jesus said in front of everyone, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Be freed from your suffering. And her heart leapt, not just set free from her illness, but restored to life and community and relationships. Why, it was like being born again. Now, this is just one of dozens of stories from Jesus' life in the Gospels. Stories of him noticing the unnoticed, accepting the rejected, repairing the broken, releasing the imprisoned, empowering the powerless, loving the unloved. 
And he did it all, well, ultimately because he was his father's son. God, our creator, compassionately cares for all his, children, all his creatures made in his image. God, our heavenly father, gently cares for all his children. God, our righteous judge, demands equality and fairness in the way all people, all people are treated. And God wants us to do the same. God shows us that part of his character in Isaiah 58. If you can turn there with me, Isaiah 58. Don read it for us earlier. Isaiah 58, verse 1, God tells Isaiah what the message he's to deliver is. He's, he's to tell Israel what their sins are. And then from verse 2 in Isaiah 58, we hear what the sins of Israel are. On the surface, they look religious. Uh, for day after day, they seek me out, says God. They seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. It all sounds okay, doesn't it? Verse 3, they've fasted, they've denied themselves food and then they wonder why God isn't impressed, why he hasn't answered their prayers. But look at God's crushing response, the second half of verse 3. Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarrelling and strife and striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. On the one hand, they do without food and they pray for God's help, but then they go to work and underpay their workers or pick an argument. Maybe there's a connection, maybe they're hangry, you know, they're hungry, angry, they go without their breakfast and so they get a bit cranky. But whatever the reason, it's no excuse. God says he won't listen to their prayers when they won't listen to each other. He won't show them any, any consideration when they don't show any to their neighbour. And then in verse 6, God describes the sort of fasting that he's really interested in. You see, fasting is about denying yourself something. It may be fasting from food, it might be fasting from something else. Fasting is about denying yourself. And so verse 5, he's not interested in individual, personal fasting. One man who humbles himself and wears his worst clothes and bows his head. But look at verse 6. Instead, is not this the kind of fasting I've chosen? To loose the chains of injustice, untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry? And to provide the poor wanderer with shelter. And when you see the naked, to clothe him and not turn away from your own flesh and blood. Now that's the sort of self-denial God is pleased with. The denial that benefits others, especially those who need it most. But why? Why does God desire that? What's at the heart of it for God? What's his motivation 
uh, at our Wednesday night home group, we, we came up with two sorts of answers. Uh, firstly, to do with us. Uh, God wants us to treat the poor this way because it's how he likes us to respond to him. Uh, we worship God just as much in so-called non-religious ways as we do in the religious ones. I think that's what he's getting at when he says in verse 6, this is the kind of fasting I've chosen to loose the chains of the unjust. This is the religious activity I want to see, practical stuff. God wants sacrifices of time and money and energy and emotions in all that we do, all of our life, done in worship to him. Romans 12.1 says that in view of God's mercies, we're to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to him. This is our spiritual act of worship. It's not just in the stuff we do on a Sunday. Our whole lives are worship uh, to God in view of his mercies. And then Romans 12 goes on to describe how we're to humbly use our gifts as we serve others. Uh, It mentions showing mercy. It mentions giving generously. All of that is the sort of response God wants. But what about the question of why specifically the hungry and the naked and the imprisoned? Why are we to give our best to them, to those sorts of people? Why not just the people we like or our family? I think one of the reasons uh, is because it's all about grace. Uh, You can't... uh, People who are like this can't repay you when you help them. Uh, And we show we uh, we understand God's grace as we show it to others. Helping people who can't repay us is grace. Uh, That's the parable of the unmerciful servant. We looked at that a little while ago. Do you remember it? Uh, Matthew chapter 18. A servant has been forgiven a huge debt by his master, but he shows he hasn't appreciated it because he goes and throws someone else in prison who owes him a small amount. And, And so in punishment, the master throws him into prison as well. So that's Matthew 18. Uh, or, or Luke chapter 14, uh, Jesus is invited to, the, to dinner at the home of a prominent Pharisee. And as he, he watches all the, the, the schmoozing going on at this dinner of all the, the upper class of people, he watches how everyone acts in ways that are self-serving. They're networking. They're building up their social cachet. Even what seems to be other person-centred can actually come from a selfish motivation. And he gives this advice in verse 12. When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or relatives or your rich neighbours. If you do, they may invite you back and so you'll be repaid. So much of our action uh, that looks like it's other person-centred can actually come from selfish motives. But when you give a banquet, says Jesus... Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame and the blind and you will be blessed although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. There's something about showing grace by giving to people who can't return it, who can't repay it. Jesus is appreciating that sort of action because it reflects his character. 
and he promises that God will reward it. Jesus goes on from verse 16 to tell the story of a man who invites lots of guests to a great banquet. Seems like these, these first invited guests are, are equals, people on his level, those who could return the favour. Uh, but they gave all sorts of weak excuses. Uh, one, I've just bought a field, I must go and see it. Another said, I've bought five head of oxen, I've got to go and try them out. I've got a new car, I want to see what she can do. And the other one said, I've just got married. They were all insults, really, uh, and they wouldn't come. And so he ordered his servants, verse 21, to go out into the streets and the alleys of the town and to bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. But there was still room, and so he said, go out into the countryside and find some more and bring them in. Those who have no chance of repaying the invitation. That's God's character. You see, he shows grace to people who can't return it. Jesus had been inviting people into the kingdom, but the Pharisees and the proud and those at the top of society didn't need it. They didn't recognise the gift. They, didn't, uh, they weren't interested. And so Jesus has been turning to those who are in need, to those who recognise their lack, to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, to those who mourn their sinfulness, who recognise they have nothing to repay a gift with. That's God's character and he wants us to show the same thing. When you uh, throw a party, when you have a dinner, invite people who can't repay you. So that's the first reason God wants us to care for the poor and the abandoned because it's to do with our response to him. Uh, The second reason why God wants us to treat these people uh, and to care for them is, comes from God's own character. comes from God's own character. Firstly, his love. Uh, he loves the poor and the downtrodden. Uh, he hates to see those, his children in pain or hungry or imprisoned. Even the lowest and the least important are made in his image with dignity and worth. So in his, in his love, he wants to, to see them cared for and not in pain and restored. But also, I think there's an aspect of his justice and God's fairness means he wants to see his resources, he wants to see resources spread evenly. Comfort and freedom and food and clothes equally shared. Why should one of his children go hungry while the other has a full cupboard? Why should one of his children walk around free while another is unjustly imprisoned? That's not fair. It's not just. God is just and fair. God loves the poor and the powerless. Jesus lived out those principles and he calls on us to do the same. Now, even though the Christian church hasn't done that perfectly or or anywhere near as well as we should, at times we've been blind to the needs around us, or or worse, we've been positively unloving. Nevertheless, down through history, there are countless stories of Christians and churches when we get it right. Christians who do stand out from those around them by sacrificially serving and caring and rescuing and feeding and cleaning and nursing and raising and defending the poor and the powerless. 
People like Catherine Hamlin. Uh, For 60 years, she's been serving some of the poorest and most rejected women in the world in Ethiopia. She grew up in Ryde, one of six kids. Ryde. 1946, she graduated as a doctor from the University of New South Wales. She could have done anything, been anything. But instead, she and her husband, Reg, also a doctor, both committed Christians from missionary families, decided to head to Ethiopia, one of the most underdeveloped countries in the world. Uh, They arrived in 1959 as obstetrician gynaecologists on a three-year contract to set up a midwifery service in the main city hospital. Uh, But within weeks, though, they found themselves treating women suffering childbirth complications so severe they'd never seen anything like it in a Western hospital. Now, apologies uh, to anyone if the next minute or so upsets you, but I think I'm going to be a little bit graphic and uh, just put your fingers in your ears if if you've got sensitive stomachs. Um, These injuries were mostly what are called fistulas, A fistula is an injury caused by long, obstructed childbirth. Days and days of labour, often by an underdeveloped mother who married too young, end up with a dead baby and a hole torn between the birth canal and the bladder, or sometimes the rectum. Caesarean sections and episiotomies mean those injuries haven't been seen in Western hospitals for decades. The injuries don't heal and the women end up continually leaking urine or faeces. They're rejected by their communities, often by their husbands and families as well. Now, the Hamlins had never seen anything like it. They had to research, try and work out how to repair the injuries. Uh, They did. They went on to teach many more local surgeons how to do it as well. And every trained doctor, apparently, in Ethiopia now has to spend some time at their hospital. Uh, By 1962, they built a hostel for fistula patients in the grounds of the hospital. The patients couldn't afford to pay, so the Hamlins funded their treatment out of their own salaries. They never turned anyone away. It's a policy that continues today. They eventually built their own hospital with donated money in 1975, Uh, Reg died in 1993, but Catherine has been there ever since, except for short visits back to Australia or somewhere else to raise money. Uh, She's one of only two foreigners to be granted Ethiopian citizenship. Uh, I tried to find out the numbers of women who may have been treated over those 60 years, but I couldn't. I'm guessing there are thousands and thousands. They do boast a 92% success rate. And each one of those thousands is a life restored. A life restored. I read a recent newspaper article by Sue Williams in the Weekend Australian and she describes the situation of some of those individual lives like this. The outdoor reception area of the Hamlin Hospital must be one of the most forlorn places in the world. New arrivals sit on the benches waiting to be seen, their eyes downcast, their bodies bowed in shame as urine pools beneath them and nurses' aides, former fistula patients themselves, try to comfort them. 
Some have walked for days to reach here. Others have borrowed money from family and friends, sold the family cow or begged to raise the bus fare, praying they won't be kicked off because of their smell. Once they've made it this far, however, they're safe. No one is ever turned away. A few, a few metres away, inside the hospital, the scene couldn't be more different. Three quarters of the 40 beds arranged in four long rows down the whitewashed ward are filled with beaming patients, either waiting for surgery or recovering from it, relaxing, eating lunch or sitting on beds, chatting excitedly. Uh, what a turnaround. Uh, what a contrast. Uh, in another feature article I read, Nikki Barraclough describes the dance of joy uh, that Catherine does with discharged patients. Catherine Hamlin is walking to the main ward from her house. It's time for the dance of joy, a regular event held to farewell patients who are cured and ready to go home. Hamlin looks tired. I'm concerned that the steep steps up to the lawn are too much for her. Ten minutes later, she's dancing and clapping in the middle of a throng of patients on the veranda. They've been given their bus fares and are wearing new dresses and other gift from the hospital. Hamlin is dancing harder than anyone. Her fatigue has completely disappeared. Come on, she exhorts one young woman who slowed down, clasping her face between her hands. Come on. The wonderful rhythmic clapping increases and so does the laughter, the joy that surrounds her. Now, you may read about Catherine Hamlin and think that she's unique. I, I couldn't possibly do anything like she's done. And I guess, in a sense, you're right. Uh, but she says she's just an ordinary girl from Ride who just wanted to help. Now, God can use that sort of attitude, can't he? God rejoices in that attitude, that, that wants to serve the poor and the powerless out of service to him. The early church, it stood out from Roman society because of their compassion. It doesn't seem as if the church today stands out at all. If we closed the doors tomorrow, would anyone notice? Society dismisses our message uh, views us as bigoted, judgmental, irrelevant dinosaurs. How much of that attitude is due to the fact that we're not distinctive? We're not distinctively caring for the poor and the powerless. Where are those people in Ashfield? If we're not sure, what are some organisations we could ask and offer to help? What organisations do know? Uh, here's one, for freedom. There you go. That's Kareen's SIM organisation. Maybe we can do something with them. Uh, Catherine Hamlin gets to experience some of the joy that comes when you pour yourself out in the service of others. And it, in it, isn't it interesting that God promises in Isaiah 58 the same joy? Back in Isaiah 58, uh, verse 10, he promises this. And if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry, 
and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. The temptation when you give out to people is to think you're going to miss out. And yet, that's not what God's saying here. God won't be in anyone's debt. He promises richness and righteousness and satisfaction and community and abundance when his people pour themselves out in the service of those around them. Won't you put him to the test? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, uh, this stuff is challenging. It, it seems big, it seems too hard, uh, and yet we pray that uh, one step at a time uh, you will change our hearts, uh, that you'll open our eyes, that you'll give us the ability to see and to love and then to care, to show that care in real ways. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his honour and glory. Amen.